0: Hi I'm Sean. I've always had a passion for personal growth and a curiosity for life's profound questions. I created this show as a platform dedicated to inspiring change through thoughtful and insightful conversation. There's a lot happening in our world today. Some of it clear, some of it confusing. My goal with these conversations is to leave you feeling better and more informed about the state of our world in these challenging times. I'd like to invite you to think outside the lines. Hello, beautiful people, and thank you so much for joining me today. My guest today is a prolific author and educator. He's penned four insightful books, Why You Feel the Way You Do, Anxiety, Phobias, and Panic, Taking Charge and Conquering Fear, Overcoming Anxiety, From Short-Term Fixes to Long-Term Recovery, and Anger, Taming the Beast. After an impressive 20-year career as a marriage and family therapist specializing in anxiety disorders, he decided to shift gears. And share his expertise as an instructor at a college in Sacramento, California. He's also created a YouTube channel featuring practical life skills and videos. Join us as we delve into the rich experiences and wisdom of this amazing individual. I invite you to think outside the lines with Renault Parafoy Renault Parafoy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me absolutely I'm really excited to chat with you today. I feel like this is going to be a really I think fascinating and inspiring conversation for our listeners so I'd love if you could maybe start with just a bit about your journey and and talk about what's motivating you to make the world a better place
1: well i i've, I've been involved with uh helping people when way or the other teaching or counseling all my life <laughs> actually uh, even at school I, I i enjoyed helping other students uh, when they're having difficulty with stuff um so yeah i i started out working with animal behavior and that was my major in biology and then i taught for a while in secondary education had a friend of mine who was a counselor and you know, we got to know each other really well, and I really enjoyed talking with him and hearing what he was doing. So I said, You yeah, know, I think I want to do that. So we went to my wife and I went to Japan for a couple of years, and I taught over there. And during that time, I decided, Yeah, that's what I want to do. So I came back, got my master's, and, and as a marriage family therapist for 20 years, I worked with anxiety disorders. I found that just a really rewarding thing to do. I left that to teach at a local college. and. Now I'm retired from active teaching, but I still, you know, do occasional classes. Been doing some writing, play some guitar, '60s rock and roll. You know, awesome! I love it. Yeah, that's kind of my journey, and just it's it's always been fascinated with the whole topic of emotions and just how how they work with people. In fact, in high school, my my sophomore year, Star Trek had come out, so that my friends referred to me as Mr. Spock. But uh, (laughs) that's a whole other thing.
0: Totally. Well, we can we can get into that too. So I don't I don't normally do this, but I want to make sure there's full disclosure here for both you and folks listening. I suffer from incredibly debilitating anxiety myself. And I'm gonna do my best to not make this episode about me, but I will say that, you know, I am incredibly fascinated by your mission and the work that you do. And I'm just I'm really excited to talk to you today. My intention for this episode is really just to be of service, I think, to anyone listening who might share this condition? And I guess one of the things I would start by asking you is, is it appropriate to call it a condition?
1: Well, you know, anxiety is a normal part of life. I worked a lot with people that had what's called panic disorder. And so they would have panic attacks, anxiety attacks. And one of the things to understand is, is that, you know, everything with human beings varies. And so some people are tall, some people are short, and there's an average height, right? So the people I work with, in fact, myself, I have the same a lot of the same characteristics which is why i think i enjoyed working with them so much is they have more reactive nervous system <laughs> you know it's kind of like a house where the yeah. wiring's not quite up to code and so yep. you know you plug too many things in the circuit breakers trip. and so one of the things that's uh, seemed to be pretty common with everybody i worked with is that they had if they were doing too much reacting too much then they would have again the circuit breaker trip and and they would experience that anxiety. Typically, when I'd ask people about their first panic attack, they would say things like, well, you know, life was pretty normal. I was going to school full time, caring for my dad, who was, you know, he was getting old and having some problems. And my fiance decided he didn't want to get married. And, you know, I just don't understand where that panic attack came from. It's like, you know, <laughs> back up the truck. I think I figured it out. It, you know, usually totally. it was like a stress reaction. Occasionally there'd be some medical thing that, you know, tripped it off. But again, oftentimes the people that I was working with, they were, you know, they liked to do things. They were very competent. They tended to ignore their body a lot. And so, you know, they had this kind of this idea, which is very common in our culture, that I can just make myself do whatever I need to do. I can just push myself and, you know, the body will follow. And I think part of that comes from the movies that we watch. You know, the guy has been thrown out of the airplane, run over by a truck, stabbed, beat up. And then you still truck along and so you know, in, in real life that's not true you know the body is a machine it's got a limited supply of energy and some days the tank is full and some days it's half empty and and just being aware of that and you know taking reasonable you know actions to compensate for that is, is very important you know limiting what you do and just focusing on what's important but not those other things to the side for right now so one of the things that I found that was really important is, for long-term recovery and to get to the point where anxiety was again, just kind of those normal parts of life is number one, except that it's, it's probably one of the really cool things about people with this condition because they're more sensitive than the average person. Now they oftentimes don't understand that. And they think everybody else is just as sensitive as they are, which is a whole another thing is to understand that for the most part, the world is inhabited by a bunch of insensitive clods, you know, compared to, you know, where these people are at. You know, some people you got to slap them upside the head to get them to notice something. But with these folks, they empathized really well. You know, it's the, it's the aspect about them that their partners, their kids, their friends really like because they could listen well. You know, they, they empathized well. And they just, you know, it's, it's a trait that is a very nice trait and a friend. So it's actually a very positive trait. It's just that, you know, they got overwhelmed very easily. And so they had to learn to keep short accounts. Uh, And what I mean by that is when things came up in life, they needed to deal with it and not just push it to the side. Because typically I would have somebody come back, you know, six months, a year later and say, you know, I I don't understand. I had a panic attack. So, you know, we'd go through the checklist, okay, how things going with your partner, how things going with the kids, how's work going, how your life goals, anything important happened recently. They would always say, well, you know, this happened, but it wasn't that big a deal. Well, the fact that yeah. you're having symptoms tells me it was a big deal. Quit ignoring it. Deal with it, and then your symptoms will get back down to a manageable level, and they'll disappear. So, and and, and that's I think the important thing. If you have a reactive body, is you can't put things on hold. You got to decide what am I, how am I going to deal with this thing?
0: Yeah, I think there, there's definitely a lot to unpack there, and I think that one of the things that I find most fascinating about anxiety are the extremes, right? Because to your point, everyone has anxiety right. to some extent. And there's folks who are able to, you know, manage that, quote unquote, as it were. Um, and then there's other folks who it does, you know, release in the form of things like a panic attack. And I think that's that the, where the extremes live are really fascinating to me. I also really appreciate what you said about sensitive yeah. people. I've I've read studies on highly sensitive people. And I think that obviously kind of anxiety and stress and certain you know, disorders live in that realm mm-hmm. as well. I definitely classify myself in that, in that area. I find myself incredibly empathetic. All the, all the things that you went through in that realm and listed out, I find that I identify with. And so I think that, that the correlation between all that is, is really fascinating to me. I'm curious if there was a, was a pivotal experience in your life that led you to focus on this specific area.
1: Well, when I started out in, in therapy as a therapist, I knew I didn't want to do substance disorder because you know, I like to win, <laughs> and, totally. you know you, you have such a high recidivism <laughs> rate. You know when you're working yeah. with the whole uh, you know substance abuse community and stuff, and, and you get wins, but you know you get a lot of. So I, I was looking around, and at that time, uh, the whole area of uh, panic disorder and anxiety disorders was just brand new. In fact, I. I I found a group down in LA, and I went down and worked with them for a week, and they were dealing with people with panic disorder and said, I I, I like their approach, I like what they're doing. I came back, went to the local university, and actually, within three days' time, I was able to read everything there was on anxiety disorders. Interestingly enough, three years later, that would have been impossible. There was just an explosion of research. In fact, this is kind of the way the whole psychology movement, you know, psychological stuff kind of goes you know, you go back to like the forties and forties and then early fifties is when the, you had people with schizophrenia and they had absolutely nothing they could do to help these people. And then the first couple, yeah. you know, stelazine, melaril came out psychoactive medications where they found, wow, we can give people some substances that actually manage their symptoms. They get better with some of it, at least why some of the people do. And so that kind of opened up the whole area of, well, you know, of, of neurobiology and of course the neurosciences started people started investigating substances make a big impact on the brain wow this is brand new stuff and so the whole research into psychoactive medications began and of course the uh, anti-anxieties uh, well, excuse me the anti started with uh, the panic disorder anxiety that kind of became the next big focus uh, center of focus for uh, you know medications and stuff and it's kind of like even within the anxiety disorders, you know, they, they find, okay, OCD, okay, oh, here's something that works for OCD. So then all the research started going to there, you know, oh, social phobia, let's go over there and start researching that. So that's yeah. kind of how it works is as they find something new, uh, you get a lot of dollars thrown at it and that, that whole field kind of opens up. So I kind of was on the cusp of working with anxiety disorders, which was, you know, nice. I put together my own mail order program for uh, people with panic disorder and got tired of doing that actually my kids were helping with fulfillment stuff i'd pay them <laughs> i'd pay somebody for every package they they put together which is a good experience i mean i i i worked started working out a paper route in the fifth grade i i, I believe so totally. all, all kids you need to work in, in fact an interesting side features is i was i did paper route for about seven years and by the end of it i had about three thousand dollars i'd saved up and so I bought 15 Krugerrands, which are like an ounce of gold each. And when I got ready to do this program, I decided I wanted to do, put it into a book format and got a lot of rejections from major publishers. Publishers, So I said, I'll publish it myself, do self-publishing. And I used my paper route money to do that. So, Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> kind, kind of just an interesting side feature. And...
0: I love that entrepreneur at heart.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and I went out and back then it was it was before politics took over radio, so I was able to get on a lot of you know talk shows and stuff and sold fifty thousand of them, and then so nice. that Horner Books picked up. They said, okay, it looks like it will sell, so we'll go ahead and publish it. And The rest was kind of history after that. So that, that was kind of annoying how yeah. I got into the whole publishing, writing books, and stuff.
0: Well, speaking of books, I, your latest one is called "Why You Feel the exactly. Way You Do." And I'd love if you could maybe provide an overview of the core themes and insights that readers can expect from
1: this. Well, part. it's kind of a summary of, of all the stuff I've been thinking about over the years, and you know, dealing with. And so I, I take the reader on kind of a little journey, and we start with the the seven core emotions that neuro affective neurobiology have identified. At least, why is that? panxepian neurobiology. And we talk about you know how they work, why they work, why we have emotions. Then I go from there to uh, negative triggers and the uh, negative core responses and how you deal with those, and then I wrap up with the three things that uh, positive psychology has identified as the key things for you know if you're going to have a happy life. So it, it was it, it was a fun fun thing to work with because I just immerse myself in research and then I sit down, and I'll write a chapter or two, and then I'll do some more research and write a chapter or two and Send it out to my readers, my beta readers, and get feedback from them and go through a whole series of writing like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's a fun, fun thing to do. You've
0: also written a book on anger entitled Anger Taming the Beast. And I think, you know, like I mentioned, as someone that lives with anxiety personally, I'm often fascinated by the, I'm not sure if it's a link or an evolution of feelings that stem from anxiety, but irritability, which often leads to anger um, is often a natural evolution of anxiety. And I'm curious if maybe you could talk a little bit about this cause I, I find that fascinating. Well,
1: uh, first of all, when I talk about anger and fear, I'm using them in a very broad sense. So fear yeah. can on the low end is, you know, just apprehension and on the high end is, you know, panic. So it's just where the dial is turned up. Mm-hmm. It's the same basic circuit in the brain though. Same thing with anger, uh, low level anger is just irritation and then high level anger courses rage. And I I should mention that the positive side of anger is whenever you assert yourself, that's that same energy and motivation that's causing you to say, hey, you're stepping on my toes. So there's a positive aspect to anger that a lot of times is not recognized when again, it's at that low level and it's fueling positive actions in, in relationships. Of course, the protective side is also useful. So anger and fear are really two sides of the same coin. And they both really, the underlying thing is threat. So when you feel threatened, you'll either experience anger, fear, or some combination depending upon how you assess the threat. And this is all kind of going on at an automatic unconscious level a lot of times. If the threat is manageable, then you'll tend to have some level of anger or irritation and want to get rid of it. If the threat is unmanageable, then it generates again anxiety or fear. And again, depending upon the nature of the threat. If it's like a new interview, okay, you might have some apprehension because, well, you know, there's unknowns there, right? New date, new class test or whatever, right? So, so the two really work together. And a lot of times, you know, the, the, the nature of the threat, whether it's going to be manageable or not, is you're not certain about it. So you might have a combination of anxiety and anger going on at the same time. And that's kind of a simplified view because, again, you know, life is more complex than that. But basically, it's all about threat. And so when I deal with people who are having anger issues, one of the things that you want to get down to is, first of all, controlling the behaviors. Because the way we we respond when we're angry is a learned behavior pattern. A lot of times we learned it in the family that we grew up in. If you had angry parents who raged a lot, then you will either going to go opposite or you'll copy that behavior, you know, depending upon your personality, because kids do have, you know, different personalities. That's yeah. an interesting thing I stumbled upon while I was doing the research was this group down in New Zealand, and they started, and it's called the Dunedin Study, and they started in 72, I think it was, and they took every baby born over the course of a year. And they just started studying them, you know, their physiology, their psychology, their social social things, and as genetics came up, they threw that in. So they've been studying these people for like fifty years, and it's the the best longitudinal study that's ever been done. And they found kids fell wow. fell into specific, you know, that by age three they could put them into different groups, which maintained, you know, even as as they got older. So there's that personality part that gets into it.
0: That's really fascinating, actually. Mm-hmm. I think the most fascinating aspect of that is mo- your suggestion of modeling behavior that you grew up with. Sometimes, even despite me not that not wanting to.
1: Well, yeah, you, you know, it's 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 kids like to copy the behavior of the adults around them. You know, that's why. Yeah. You know, you, you know, your kid is sitting there looking and sounding just like you, and you're thinking, "Oh my gosh, what is going on here?"
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I'm I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the balance between immediate relief strategies and long-term recovery strategies as it pertains to anxiety. Well,
1: you know, the first thing is, is you want to get, get symptoms under control. And so you do a number of things. Breathing techniques are really important. The old military breathing, you know, in through your nose, out through your mouth, you know, where you count. Because hyperventilation is a big part of people that have panic attacks. And so, and, yeah. and even before giving a speech or something, if you can you know, regulate your breathing a little bit, it helps to calm you down. Because again, it, it, it ties into the old fight or flight mechanism and helps to calm that, that part of that system. A relaxation response was something I used a lot. I'd give people tapes and I'd have on there the suggestion when they put their two fingers and thumb together, it would trigger that response. And there was nothing special about that. It's just something that they could do out in public and nobody noticed it, right? And so they would train themselves to you know, develop that relaxation response. And, and it doesn't totally relax your body, but it takes the edge off. So, and that's key. And, of course, self-talk is the other really, really important thing because the thing that keeps a lot of the anxiety stuff going on is the way a person talks to themselves. People with panic disorder, the two things that they did a lot is they would do a lot of internalization. And so they would start watching their body a lot because, you know, this thing might come at unusual times, and so they all want to be aware of that. And, of course, when you start watching your body, you notice all kinds of things you never noticed before because normally we're externalized all the time. We're looking at things and involved with things outside of ourselves. And then the other thing, of course, is that they did a lot of negative anticipation, you know, what if thinking, what if this happens, what if that, what if I can't control it, what if people see me, what if I screw up, what if I make a fool of myself... What if I can't control myself? What if something serious is going on? You know, they have thousands of what-if thoughts. And so managing those becomes yeah. super, super, super important. And so as a general thing for managing what-if thinking, there's like four steps, right? And one of the things that, that people do that, is, that creates problems is they do a lot of emotional reasoning. So emotional reasoning is when you use your emotions to judge whether something is true as opposed to reason. So again, I would typically ask somebody who had the fear of maybe passing out, so what's the likelihood of passing out when you go to the store? Oh, maybe 50%. So that would be their estimate, right? So then I'd say, so how often have you passed out in your life? Well, I've never passed out. So based on emotion, it was likely. Based on experience and reasoning, it was unlikely. And again, so that's one of the things that, that people need to do is they need to on okay, logically, how likely is to this to occur? And the next thing is they would exaggerate the consequences. So if you were to pass out in the store, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad would that be? Oh, probably a 15. You know, worst thing I can imagine. Okay, so on a scale of 1 to 10, let's put 10, you know, getting your arm cut off, your kids getting killed, having a wasting disease, something like that. So how bad would passing out in the store now be? Okay, now that brings it way down to, you know, low end of the scale, right? So people tend to exaggerate how bad it would be and how likely it would be. So that's the first step. People who manage anxiety well and and uncertainty well, they tend to be more realistic in those two areas. And then the next two steps, which, of course, they never got to because they were busy thinking, oh, my gosh, it's going to happen. It's the worst thing in the world. Oh, my gosh, it's going to happen. It's the worst thing in the world, is if it were to happen, what would I do? Come up with a plan. So we would come up with a plan. Well, you'd sit down, your CO2 would rebalance, you know, and your O2 would rebalance in your blood system. You'd come to, after just a couple minutes, you'd need to have something to say. So what could you say? And so we'd come up with something simple to say like, well, okay, I'm feeling, just let me sit for a minute. I'm okay. There's nothing serious with me. You know, whatever. You know, we'd come up with a sentence that they could say. And then how could you prevent it would be the other part. So, you know, techniques, you know, other things that, that they, each person would have a, a little tool bag of things that would help them just uh, deal with uh, their what ifs. So then they compress all that down into like two or maybe three sentences so that when that thought came up, what if I pass out, they had some self-talk, what we call a coping self-statement that they could then say to themselves in response to that thought. And then I'd have them put that on a card and just read it, you know, once a day for a week or so until they get you know, until it was stuck in their head so they could immediately, you know, whenever that thought came up, they could answer it. And you do that with every single what if that the person had. And sometimes they were unusual, but uh, you still, you just work it through. And then pretty soon the person gets gets good at doing that on their own and they, they get out of that loop of, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. It's going be to be the worst thing in the world.
0: I'm fascinated by the aspect of the coping strategies mm-hmm. And I think specifically, like as it pertains, like with panic disorders and avoidance, right. because there's an aspect in that where it's like, how could I get out of the situation? Well, not put myself in the situation is <laughs> the best way to not, well, you know and, what I mean? And, 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 so, and, and, and sometimes
1: that? that's okay, right? <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 I'm not particularly fond of uh, jumping out of an airplane. So I, I just do not do uh, parachuting or skydiving or anything like that. But.
0: Yes, that's a great example. But I think flying on an airplane is something that a lot of people fear, well, exactly, right? yeah, and they in avoid. Fact, you
1: know who has the best yeah. f- fear of flying uh, program in the world? Military. Who? Military. Oh, do they because, really? Because if you got a pilot that used to put a lot of money out training, and they have a blowout in the airplane, you know, a flame out or something, they get a little freaked about. You don't want to get them back in that seat as, as soon as you can. <laughs> totally.
0: Yeah, 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 that's fair. In fact, it's funny that you say that because my dad actually was in the military. He jumped out of airplanes yeah. and. I, I think that like he, I think commercial flying is a bit more challenging for him because he's not in control. Right. But he definitely has like less of the fear than most people. Yeah. Know.
1: <laughs> and and again, some fear is is useful. Again, gets keeps you sharp. So it, it, again, it has to do with levels and how well you're managing it. Yeah. So, so yeah, you get your whole toolbox going. You know, and and long term, a person needs to normalize this. Uh, one one of the things that was most rewarding to me is is. I had a self-help group that used to use my first book. And when I went to one of the conferences, they all showed up and they had these buttons that said, so I'm anxious. And that self-acceptance was just so so (laughs) neat to say. You know, you'd hear them talking. Well, you know, I, I got a presentation tomorrow. Probably won't sleep tonight, but I know I'll sleep good the next night. So, you know, it it was getting to that idea of, you know, this is who I am. This is how I go through life. And that's just what I do. As opposed to in the past, oh, my gosh, if I don't sleep, I'm going to screw up with the presentation. This is terrible. And then they wind themselves up, right? So it's learning how not to do that. And, and again, two of the key things, long-term recovery, too. One is the idea that anxiety is not dangerous. You know, it's just, you know, it's just it's something that that is part of life it has to do with threat and uncertainty and if you have a reactive body your body is going to be more reactive than the average person and that's okay you know again usually these people are the life of the party too <laughs> they're, they're fun people to be around so that's the yeah. positive side of it again you know everything negative has a positive side so if you, if you stay focused on the negative then, yeah, that's where you're going to be. But understand that this is a great trait. There's a lot of very useful aspects that it has in your life. It's just that you got to manage the downside. Again, it's that house where the wiring is not quite up the code. You don't want to overload yourself yeah. too much. And that, that stress management thing becomes a key part, too. In fact, one of the things with stress management that I always would, would stress and still do if I do a class is that you need to understand what your stress indicators are. And so, with anxiety disorder people, it's the anxiety symptoms, right? It's like the little dash, little uh, light on your car that says, you know, your battery or something needs attention. And your symptoms often are just an indication that you need to take care of some business in your life or your body is just running out of energy. And so, paying attention to that becomes super important. Like, two, two of my stress indicators one, is that sometimes there's a change in how I use language. Not too often anymore, but my dad was a sailor, career sailor in the Navy. So, you know, sometimes that creeps in a little bit. Or I'll sit there and if I'm, <laughs> I'm spending a lot of time just with a stupid little video game at my computer, kind of staring at it and just mulling on things, then I know something's bugging me and I need to kind of identify what that is. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll do that while I'm sitting there fiddling around on the computer. So th- those are my particular little indicators that, that that something's bugging me and everybody has something behavioral that they do when they're when something's bothering them or, or stressing them and just identifying what those are and notice and, and noticing them when you're doing them okay i'm, I'm doing my stress stuff so <laughs> where's that coming from and a lot of times it's real stuff you know and so that's okay too In reality yeah you know, I, I used to tell my clients i'm just a positive realist you know sometimes life sucks but you got to deal with it, you yeah. know? And so rather than run away from it or ignore it, just accept that things aren't the way I want them to be. So how am I going to deal with that?
0: Yeah, that's fair. I think you talk about the seven core emotions and I want to expand on those a bit because I, I'm curious if you could maybe just take us through each one of these emotions and why understanding them is so vital to navigating you know, our our, emotional, our mental and emotional sure. landscape.
1: Well, there's the ones that everybody knows about, you know, fear and anger and lust. And th- there's actually two that I, I, I learned about that were kind of new to me. One was something called seeking. Uh, at least that's, that's the term they use for it. And uh, if you look at any baby, they have this urge to go out. Uh, in fact, let me back up and, and talk a about more what an emotion is. Neuro Neuroscience uh, talks about affects and there's like three levels and the most basic sensory affects are heat, cold, and pressure. And so if I'm really cold or really hot, you know, I want to, warm myself, cool myself. If I've been sitting too long, the pressure makes me want to move. So an affect causes you, causes a strong desire to do something, to do some kind of behavior. The next level of, af- of affects are your homeostatic affects. That's just a fancy word for balance. They keep balance in your body. So hunger and thirst are the two big ones. You know, the thirstier you are, the more you have this desire to find something to drink. And the hungrier you are, the, the more you have that desire to get something to eat so the affects generate a desire and also they activate the body to take care of some need so emotions are kind of like the next level up and of course they get tied into your thinking part of your brain so they they get modified and adjusted by that and they're not at equal level for everybody you know your wiring and your personality and your childhood experiences all affect all this stuff so it's it's not just a You know, everybody's exactly the same. But the seeking is wanting to go out and explore the environment. Again, you look at any baby, human baby, puppy, kitten, whatever, they have this drive to go out and explore the environment. And that's to basically find out what's good and what's bad out there. In fact, that's why when somebody walks into the room, everybody kind of takes a look at it, and then they go back to what they're doing. It's, again, it's, it's, it's an unconscious impulse just to see what's happening, you know, what's going on, or you go to a new situation, and kind of the first thing you do is you just kind of check out everything, and you do it almost unconsciously, but it's that drive to know, is it safe or is there danger out there? So that's one of them that I found very fascinating, and, and again, it's the basis of curiosity as we get older, right? We like to learn new things and see new things, unless that's been yeah. beat out of us, right? next one that was kind of new to me was the play circuit. I mean, I've always liked to play. I'm a play is where I live. But it's not an actual circuit. In fact, Pansip, one of the guys that uh, did some of the, the initial research in this, in fact, he was known as the rat tickler because that was one of his first things he was working with. But he found he could actually turn off all of the thinking part of the rat's brain, and they still wanted to play. So it's a very important drive. And, Interesting. And with social animals, which humans are highly social. It's how we learn social limits. In fact, I, I, I watch my three and a half year old great granddaughter on Mondays and Tuesdays. And yeah, sure enough, you know, when we're playing, sometimes she goes too far. That's where you, you step and say, wait a minute, that's too far. Stop that. And as adults, you know, we still have that play, that sense to play, and it still helps us kind of learn limits and stuff. So, yeah. so it's a very all, all you know all social animals all mammals that are so highly social that that's a very strong circuit in their in their brain you see it like in wolves and dogs and you know kittens it seems to quiet down as they get older but they still like to play to some degree so yeah. those are the two that were kind of new to me and then it turns out that with fear there's two fear circuits there's the one for danger but there's another one that they label panic but we know it usually in kids is separation anxiety. So when kids are separated from their caregiver, can they get distressed, right? And that's true for all mammals again. And then there's a complementary circuit that they call the caring circuit that gets triggered that causes this desire to go and somehow soothe you know, that baby. And as adults, of course, that's part of what underlies the love and the bonding that we have with other people. You know, That's why we miss them when they're gone and why we, you know, if something is wrong with them, we want to take care of it, kind of the basis of our relationship, those two circuits, along with the lust and the play, you know, circuit. And so we, we actually, out of those seven, four of them have to do with the relationship, which is why in positive psychology, that's that's the big one that makes people happy, is having positive relationships, which, again, for so many people nowadays is in short supply.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm curious if you could go back really quick to, you mentioned separation from caregivers, separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious if there's been studies on children who, let's say, had parents that were like maybe had jobs where they had to be away a lot and how that, you know, kind of constant separation impacted those folks later. Well,
1: again, the, the circuits can be either, they can be dampened by early childhood experience. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Uh, one of the studies yeah. in the book that I mentioned is with uh, children that used to come out of some of the uh, Eastern European uh, orphanages, the babies, and they were never held. They were given bottles propped up and they would be changed periodically. But when they cried, they, they were distressed. Never, nobody would come to you know comfort them. And so they would have what was called or what is called attachment disorders. They'd have a difficult time attaching to the parents. And a really interesting experiment that was done is they would take and measure oxytocin levels, and that's one of the hormones that seems to be associated with this caring and attachment circuit. And if you take a birth mother and her child, and you play a, for a toddler, let's say, and you play a simple game on the computer, then the oxytocin levels go way up. With these babies, it would stay flat. And so that indicates there was something going on neurologically that had gotten turned off. Now, with therapy they could they seem to improve, but yeah, so that's that indicates that that early childhood experiences can increase or decrease. I, I know there are a lot of programs and I, I don't know of specific studies, but I know like with women from disadvantaged backgrounds or substance abuse or other things, they have programs that actually teach them how to connect with their kids because a lot of times they were not well connected with their parents and so they have to learn how to do that with their children.
0: That's fascinating. You mentioned earlier, you alluded to negative triggers and I'm curious how, you know, obviously negative triggers, core response patterns can have significant impacts on mental well-being. How do these patterns form and can you maybe talk about some of the strategies you can use for quieting their influence? Sure.
1: Well, the the brain likes to create order out of disorder, which is why you can look at a bunch of clouds and see all kinds of stuff or you can throw some pebbles on the ground and suddenly you see patterns. You know, The brain likes to create order and it's constantly making associations. So from even inside the womb, the brain is starting to associate, this is good, this is bad. Now, the interesting thing about emotions is they are used to index information. So when something important happens, positive or negative, it gets a corresponding mm-hmm. emotional tag on it. And that's why experiential learning is more important than book learning. So the analogy I use is you can learn everything there is about driving a car, but until you get behind the wheel and start practicing, that's when your brain can say, oh, wow, that didn't work. Oh, hey, this works good. And pretty soon all that can be, all those associations become an automatic unconscious pattern. In fact, It's amazing how much activity goes on at an unconscious level that we're just, you know, we're just totally unaware of it because we're thinking about what we're going to have for dinner or what TV program we're going to watch or something related to work or whatever. But just even walking down the street, your brain is aware of anything that might be associated with danger, anything that might be associated with positive stuff. At the same time, it's coordinating your body. You know, it's just just doing so many things that you're totally Unaware of because again, you're busy thinking about some other little stupid thing, <laughs> talking to somebody or whatever. And so I, sometimes associations get made with things that are actually safe, causes them to be normal, dangerous. So uh, PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, is probably the best example of that where people have sounds or sights or things that get associated with danger. So if I'm in a really bad car accident, Everything that's going on sensory at that time, sounds, sights, feelings, things just before it, all those things now get an emotional tag of danger. So when they come up again in the future, they cause, you know, anxiety because now they want to bring my attention to that. So one of the examples I do in the book is of a person who was in a plane, a couple people. In fact, even my brother had this experience where, where a lightning hit it, and it's kind of like a bomb goes off in the airplane, right? And so now flying has that negative trigger. And so the next time you get ready to fly, there's some anxiety. Now, what you do with that depends whether it's going to increase or decrease. If you do a lot of negative self-talk around that, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. You know, I I don't know if I'm going to ever fly again. Then it escalates the anxiety. If instead you do the self-talk, Well, boy, you know, this is probably just because of that thing I had last time, that experience with the the lightning, but, you know, I'm safe. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to get to where I need to do. Now let me distract myself. Then you'll desensitize to it. So essentially you you go through a, a process of what we call desensitization, and you can desensitize to anything. So if, you know, you do that at work, you get a new job and you're anxious, a little bit of anxiety at the beginning, you know, you're kind of not sure about stuff, but after a while it gets really comfortable and now all that stuff goes away. So you get a new job, same thing goes on, you know, new relationship, whatever it is, we desensitize to new experiences uh, normally. So with uh, triggers like that, one of the tools I use for simple triggers, like the airplane or something like that, is uh, what's happening, what's real. So you tell yourself what's happening uh, in very simple terms, and you tell yourself what's real, and then you distract yourself. So again, in the case of the airplane, uh, this anxiety is just because I had that lightning strike. Yeah, it was frightening. It really shook me up. But I'm fine. Nothing bad happened to me. I was always safe. We landed. No problems. I'm going to do fine on this plane. Okay, so now let me find something else to think about. And then as you go through that, that's the way you manage the anxiety so that you don't escalate it. Because the thing that really either increases or decreases uh, anxiety is your self-talk and how you react to it. And when you tell yourself a lot of frightening things that aren't true, then it escalates it. If you tell yourself soothing things, it dampens it. And again, that's something a lot of times people have to learn because their model growing up might have been one to escalate things. You know, they had a parent who was a worrier or tend to cat- catastrophize things, as opposed to the person who grew up in a family where they dealt with anxiety well, and so they had that model to them how to you know do that comforting, soothing talk, self self talk when things were coming up.
0: Yeah, honestly, how someone is raised, it, it, their upbringing is so fascinating in all of this, and not in a blaming way, right? Because I think sometimes you know people think psychology goes to that place. I think it's more of like a examination and learning it, from. It's right? more of
1: just what is. You know, we grow we grow yeah. up in a world that has a lot of problems, and you know, people get affected. You know, and and, and quite frankly, a lot of the stuff that we see as bad nowadays actually was very important for survival in the past you know like being a rigid thinker if i live in in a very dangerous circumstance i need to be very black and white about a lot of stuff in my life otherwise you know i don't make it we live in a very cushy pampered existence nowadays in many ways with opportunities and stuff that you know in the past people just did not have plus the other thing i think that's different today is in the past your environment did not change a whole lot you know, your technology, the things you did, you know, for centuries and centuries were pretty constant in a person's life. And nowadays there's this constant, constant change and evolution of how we do things and technology and, you know, what's dangerous and what's not dangerous and what's okay and what's not okay. And that's that's a real challenge for people, too.
0: Yeah, and I'm actually that was... Strangely enough, that was my next question, because I am curious about the role that you think technology plays, for better or worse, right, in dealing with anxiety and just, I guess, mental health in general.
1: Well, you know, we, we are like kids with new toys every time new technology comes out, and it takes us a while to figure out how to manage it. Certainly, the, 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 the social media creates a lot of problems for a lot of people. In fact, there's a term out there now called fear of missing out that is really common with people because they see all these curated images of perfect lives and of course their life just it's terrible compared to everybody else's life you know and so there's a fear of missing out in fact i think understanding that for me gets it back into again that whole idea of relationship being one of the three things that makes people happy and if you have two or three people in your life that you can be transparent with, that you can be uh, open about what's going on, good or bad. They accept you, and you have a good relationship with them. Uh, you don't have to worry too much about your mental health usually. Uh, but there are people, a lot of people today, they can spend their whole day and not have a single interaction with another human being that's really positive and meaningful. And yeah. we are social beings. We need that face-to-face Contact because again, when, when you go through, you know, a telephone or a Zoom meeting or something like that, it's good, and I enjoyed connecting with my daughter when she was studying over in England that way. But there's something different about face to face because we are wired to accept all of these different nonverbal forms of communication from other human beings, and and it and it and it, and it hits it hits us at a deeper level than some of the other electronic methods of communication take place i mean one of the examples i give for that is if i say the phrase i love you if i say i love you i love you hey love you guy you know automatically what all three of those are saying without me having to explain them because we have that internal wiring for interpreting nonverbal communication and when you're just seeing video you're getting some of it you're getting facial stuff but you're not getting all the rest of the stuff that's going on a lot of times body language and certain inflections sometimes don't come across and that's why having somebody there face to face in person is much more valuable and comfortable than you know the, the substitutes although you know if, if they're not available the others are good too
0: yeah and i'm actually really fascinated i i want to do an upcoming episode on just like the loneliness epidemic oh, yeah. that i think you just keep hearing more and more about right and i think that Especially how COVID impacted that for so many yeah. people. And, you know, it was hard to go back for some. Yeah, I, I'm really fascinated by well, all that. Well, and,
1: and people weren't doing that great with the relationships prior to COVID either. And it's just sort of, es- es- totally, it, it sort of <laughs> escalated all of that. You know, it, it, it's, yeah. it's the saddest thing for me is to go out to a restaurant and you see the two parents on their phone and the kids are all on their electronic devices yeah. and nobody's talking or interacting.
0: Yeah. I'm with you. I don't have kids, but that's that's something that I think about every time I go out and I see that, just because it's like, I, I and that's why, like, I phrased my question in the way that I did about it being potentially like a blessing and a curse yep. because technology has given us, you know, so many advancements and life is so much better today because of oh, it. Yeah. But to your point, you know, about seeing the family in the restaurant where they don't talk to each other, <laughs> it's like, why are you even here?
1: Yeah. Well, one, one of the uh, the research papers I looked at. I think it was Europe. I think it was Germany, but I forget exactly which country was it. But they had a group of people from 18 to their mid-20s just basically reduce their social media, the time they spent on it, for an hour a day. And they all registered much happier a couple of weeks later just by doing that simple act, you know, because it forced them yeah. to do other things. You know, they had to do something else with yeah. that hour. Uh, and usually it was something that was more nurturing for them.
0: How do you see the landscape of mental health support evolving and are there any specific advancements on the horizon that you find yourself excited about?
1: Well, well, I think the, the there, there's a lot more availability because of the internet and people being able to th- through video conferencing, you know, talk to people. Again, one-on-one is more useful, but there's a lot of people live in places where there's, you know, there's not people available and not enough people available to help others so I think that's a really useful thing that's out there I think it's just all the research is going on I, I I think the the problem is is again we are like kids and there's so many people that don't access this stuff people that are hurting and they don't know where to get help or they don't even need know they need help or they're they're so so tuned in to what they're doing they don't take time to really take a look at what you know where, where they need to change their life yeah, yeah there's it's interesting because there's not that big a percentage of people that are on a self-improvement self you know mode of operating their life most people are just kind of automatic pilot going through life
0: yeah what do you hope that your you know your readers your audience anyone listening today will, will take away from your work in terms of understanding their emotions and managing anxiety and just leading happier lives <laughs>
1: Well, essentially just being able to understand, you know, where their emotions are coming from, things like some of the negative triggers they have, and especially some of the core response patterns, which we didn't get to, but being able to change those into more positive ones so they can just live a happier, more fulfilling life. I mean, that's, that's what I'm all about.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I do want to thank you so much for your presence and all the insight you shared today. To your point, we didn't get to everything we wanted to talk about. I'd love to invite you back some time for, for for part two, especially given the state of our world today. I just, I I think that that this is some really important stuff that we're discussing. And yeah, I'd I'd be happy to have you back on the show anytime you'd like. In the meantime, please tell everybody how they can connect with you.
1: Easiest way is through my, my website. It's very easy. It's emotions dot com. So why com, And you got links to the books, their audio paperback ebook. I got a YouTube channel with a bunch of, uh, videos on different things that we've talked about today. Uh, there's some freebie stuff up on the website, some relaxation response programs and things you can, people can download. and So just different things like that. So whyemotions.com is the best place to go.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and I actually had a chance to explore some of that myself, and I'm excited to dive in a bit further because I think that a lot of what you say resonates. And like I said, I just I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, thank you. All right, I want to thank my guests today for sharing their insight with us. And I'm incredibly grateful to you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this conversation. I hope it left you better and smarter. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a future guest or a particular topic you'd like me to cover, you can email me directly, hello at thinkoutsidethelines.com. Now may you go out into the world today and leave things better than you found them. For more information, please visit thinkoutsidethelines.com.